Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Some might say there's nothing worse or more urgent than the sound of a screaming baby. And the members of the House of Representatives, like Liberal Party MP Henry Fish, who was a fierce opponent of the suffrage bill, agreed. Mr. Speaker, picture what might happen if husband and wife were members of the House. We will fence them down here with their youngest cherub, not old enough to be relieved of maternal care and anxiety. He even organised two petitions against it. Fish was known to switch allegiances often and even bought votes. And supposing she gets up to make a speech and he's nursing the baby. (laughs) And she says to her husband, Here, my honourable friend, will you be kind enough to nurse the baby while I speak? If only they knew then what we know now. I take very seriously the role of becoming a mum, as does Clark becoming a dad. Um, But we equally take seriously the role that I've taken on as Prime Minister of New Zealand. Yep, it's 2018. We've been lucky in New Zealand to have a succession of strong female leaders like Jenny Shipley, Helen Clark, not to mention Ruth Richardson, who was responsible for founding a creation parliament in the 80s. And of course, our very own Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, is now a mum. So when the nation found out that she was pregnant, I wondered what it meant for women in New Zealand. Would we finally have a Prime Minister who understood the competing demands of motherhood and career? Jacinda Ardern at 37, lots of people talking early on about her experience, but actually she transformed the Labour Party, didn't she? It was, in fact, her sense of possibility, her sense of being connected in different ways to a different part of the electorate that transformed a metamorphosis for Labour. Possibility connectedness and metamorphosis, words that align Jacinda Ardern with a new era that's all about change for women and families in New Zealand. She represents a time where women can have it all, but having it all comes with mounting pressures and expectations until something breaks. The question is, do we want it all? How did we even get here? And what's still standing in our way? I'm Sonia Sly, and this is Beyond Kate, a podcast exploring women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand. But how much has really changed? Throughout this series, we'll be looking at a number of themes and issues around women's suffrage now and in the past. Last time we looked at rural life, and this time we get down to politics, keeping in mind that we'll be revisiting different aspects relating to women's vote across the series. But first, Stephanie Lash from Archives New Zealand with the lowdown on the 1893 suffrage petition and the way it was presented at Parliament. It's a story that sounds almost unbelievable. The man who supported the legislation in the House of Representatives, Sir John Hall, had previously been a Premier. He was really into voting because under his prime ministership in the late 1870s all men had gotten the vote and so he was the real champion of the women's suffrage um, legislation and so he must have had quite a sense of theatre. He was the one who sponsored the bill in the House and so he had this massive role which had been transmitted to him in Parliament. He had it rolled into the House in a big wheelbarrow and he gave a speech um, in support of the bill which was a rousing success. He unrolled the petition all the way down the central aisle of the debating chamber where it hit the far wall with a thud and the newspaper accounts of the day said that you know the great form of the role was hardly diminished by it having been rolled all the way down the aisle. It was that big. and it was so very dramatic. It was yeah. very dramatic, very theatrical, very enduring. Um, I think thud is the only word I've ever seen that describes the sound with which the petition hit the far wall and so I think it must have been quite a thud indeed. Pretty cool. And yeah. that was really the petition's job in that big role was to make a statement. was to make a statement and to bring attention to the sheer number of people and women who were knocking on the door of 
the House of Representatives to gain this power. Power penned on paper and rolled up on a broom handle. Hmm. Only in New Zealand, right? All of the signatures were counted up because at the time of its transmittal to Parliament, this petition was said to have 25,519 signatures on it. And the woman who signed, if you think about these pieces of paper circulating around the country from door to door, it wasn't always straightforward. There were a few sneaky signatures in there too. Unless you knew the girls yourselves, there was no easy way to know the age of a young lady who'd signed the petition, and plenty of girls did sneak their uh, signatures on when they were under the majority, the age of 21. But most of the people who signed who were underage that we found, a tiny sample, were, you know, 20, 19 and 20. Then there's a few people who have signed twice. There's a couple of duplicate sheets, and that is also very interesting. Oh, they were, you know, and they were still counted. <laughs> and the chaos of getting the petition around as many places as possible that people signed a couple of times or you know they signed at their home and then they went off to another town to visit friends or family or to go on holiday and they ran into the petition there as well. And surely they were aware of that they were doing that. Yeah. And probably the woman you know going door to door would have gone oh no that's okay you can sign it again. (laughs) (laughs) It's really cool yeah. Before the broom handle and the dramatic thud it looked at times that we weren't going to make it. Yes, Kate and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU for short, worked hard to circulate the petition, but they were also abused and ridiculed in the process. Here's a clip from Archives New Zealand, a dramatisation of a WCTU meeting. The newspapers are calling us screaming sisters, the screeching sisterhood. Well, what are we screaming for? We're screaming out for justice. That's all. Justice. The right to have a say on all things that affected women in and out of the home. In the next episode, we'll look at social reform. But let's stay on track. What was really at stake for women in New Zealand? And how hard was the fight to get the vote when women in other parts of the world were also chasing equality? We in New Zealand and Australia tend to think of the vote being given to us rather than having won the vote. Meet Kate Hunter. I'm an Associate Professor of History at Victoria University of Wellington. But I don't think we should discount how much of a struggle it was and how difficult it was for middle-class women to put themselves out into the public realm campaigning for the vote. That was quite something... Those women campaigning for the vote had a fire in their bellies. They were angry and driven by a desire to be seen and heard. Divorced women had no property rights, but women were also running households and they were capable of far more than the limited rights they were given. Another argument is that giving the vote to women will disrupt home life. Did you ever hear anything so daft? Being the first nation to give women the vote was due to a number of factors. The other thing that was happening in that early 19th century, in the early 1800s, was mass immigration from Britain to places like the United States, to New Zealand, to Australia. And one of the things that historians have noticed about all those frontier settlements, is that they allowed for more elasticity in women's roles. There are all of these kind of Midwestern states where women are getting the vote very early on. And then when you look at um, our part of the world, yeah, New Zealand, 1893, South Australia, 1894, Western Australia, 1899, these are all places where white women's role had developed to be very different to that of their British mothers. You see, women in New Zealand had to muck in way more than their mothers might have back home. They might have been learning French or playing piano and doing needlework. Life was perhaps more brutal because women were doing all of that, as well as helping out on the farm, milking cows. They also went out to work as well, so the load was much heavier. So where... In Victorian Britain, women's roles were very narrowly confined to, you know, the stereotype is that they were the angel in the home. And this is one of the arguments that New Zealand historians make, is it is in those societies where women get the vote first. It's it's the places where women are crucial to daily existence, to prosperity, uh, to family survival. 
in a way that they didn't have the opportunity to be in Britain. You know, in the Midwest of the United States or, you know, in rural Canterbury, a woman could not be confined to the home. It wasn't practical, it wasn't useful, and families couldn't survive that way. And so the notion of the useful woman, the useful companion, the wife, was really very widespread in a lot of these white settler colonies. So right through the 19th century, women all over the world, really, were pushing for greater rights. And earlier, in France, the campaign there goes as far back as the 18th century and the French Revolution. One of the great ironies is that, you know, French women didn't get the vote until the 1940s, despite the fact that they were a huge part of the, the physical and very bloody revolution that launched, you know, for all the great promises of democracy and anti-authoritarianism and the overthrow of the monarchy, women had been completely blocked out of any formal political power. So when we look at, well, where was the vote being given to white women in the 19th century? Well, the first few places are American states. So Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, and all within a decade of Lincoln abolishing slavery. Kate says women in Britain and in the US looked to slavery and began reflecting on the ways that they were also enslaved with very few rights. What about the Isle of Man and the Cook Islands? So the Cook Islands got theirs just probably months after we did. I think the Cook Islands is a, is a very direct flow-on from New Zealand. That relationship's very strong. The other thing that's really interesting about New Zealand is, by comparison, how peaceful the transition was. Which is something very distinctive about the New Zealand suffrage story. Uh, compared with Britain, where, of course, by kind of 1911, 1912, 1913... The suffrage movement had developed this paramilitary wing where people were putting bombs in letterboxes and, you know, throwing bricks through shop windows. And suffragists here never resorted to violence. I mean, it wasn't just civil disobedience. This was, in some ways, a, the beginnings of a campaign of terror. By women. By women. <laughs> and actually by fairly respectable middle-class women. Despite New Zealand being the rougher frontier society, the political campaign here was more peaceful than in Britain. It's this great story of the Pankhurst family, so Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters who founded the, what we know as colloquially as the suffragettes. Women in New Zealand were otherwise known as suffragists. Back to the Pankhurst story. So these women from the Women's Social and Political Union decided at one of their meetings that the stone would be our policy. And they had to take the train out into the countryside with a whole bunch of Marxist trade union leaders to learn how to throw stones. Because they were middle-class women, they'd never thrown anything with any force, really, in their lives. But they were fast learners. Here's a clip from the movie Suffragette. They were extremely dedicated. You know, when you think about what it would take for you as a middle-class woman to then put a bomb in a postbox or to throw a stone through a shop window in the middle of London, to be arrested, to go to court, the shame attached to that, and then being put in prison, not as a political prisoner, but just in with the criminals, and then their decision to go on hunger strikes... We were fortunate that things never escalated here and that the lives of women weren't at risk. Today, we have other means to voice our concerns, whether it be through social media and select committee submissions. You work at the laundry? Part-time from when I was seven, full-time from when I was 12. We meet Mondays and Thursdays if you're interested. You a suffragette, Mrs Elliot? I consider myself more of a soldier. As Mrs Pankhurst says, it's deeds, not words, that will get us the vote. You know, the force-feeding and the torture that those women went through. It wasn't uncommon for women to be dragged out of protests in London and taken into back alleys and raped. But luckily for women in New Zealand, campaigning for the vote never escalated to that degree of violence. And isn't it interesting that despite the fact they were, you know, we could categorise them as kind of leisured middle-class women, that they were willing to pay that price. 
that, and there weren't just one or two of them. They were in the dozens and in probably into the hundreds. But for the screaming sisterhood of suffragists back home, a fight for the vote was hard won. Women hadn't been included in public life and conservative Victorian attitudes kept women in the home. Here's Dr Samuel Hodgkinson, an MP and anti-suffragist of the time. I believe that this attempt to bring about women's suffrage is one of the many mistakes that this 19th century is making. The idea comes from a very bad source. It comes from bad parentage. What? But interestingly, he abstained from alcohol, but was totally against prohibition, one of the driving forces behind votes for women. Now, in the lead-up to the first suffrage petition, a leaflet was distributed by the WCTU to every single member of the House of Representatives. It stated ten reasons why women should vote. Because a democratic government like that of New Zealand has not yet been proved that the intelligence of women is only equal to that of children, nor that their social the presence of women at the polling booth would have a refining and because the votes of women would add weight and power to the more settled. Women are less liable than men to be swayed by mere parties. Because women are endowed with a more constant solitude for the welfare of the rising generations, etc. And even though the suffragettes in Britain endured some heavy-handed resistance, the New Zealand campaigners here still copped plenty of flack. They were spat on, they were jostled, their meetings were broken up, they were threatened. Why do you think that kind of things never catapulted to the same degree of having to kind of incorporate any violent acts into their tactics? Well, I think it was partly because they won over the government very quickly. One of the reasons the British cause tipped over into violence was that the Prime Minister, Asquith, promised them that he would look at the vote and then he got he didn't. In fact, what he did do was extend the male vote but not the female vote and that just tipped everything over into... They felt they'd been lied to and betrayed. Now, that might have been luck here or it might have been a calculation on the part of male members of Parliament. New Zealand women were content to petition... I suppose you never thought of stirring up obstinate legislators by setting fire to post boxes or storming Parliament building? Oh, no. This is Mrs Nellie Perryman, a suffrage campaigner and editor of the WCTU newsletter The White Ribbon, speaking to an unidentified broadcaster in the 1940s. Mrs Shepherd, who directed the franchise movement, was a lady in the real early Victorian sense of the word. She would never have approved of violence, though we had some provocation. We put up with abusive criticism from our chief opponents, and some silly things were said about our ideal in Parliament. You know, it wasn't just something whereby, you know, you woke up the next day, oh, lo and behold, look, women have got the vote. It was a big energetic campaign. Charlotte MacDonald, Professor of History, Philosophy, Political Science and International Relations at Victoria University. Quite why the campaign succeeded in New Zealand when it did is a much more difficult question to answer. It's not simply a matter of scale or size because there were antagonists here, people who opposed it, MPs who opposed it, voted against it. Um, It was difficult to get around the country, so Kate Shepherd and the franchise groups who were pressing for the vote, you know, they couldn't fly around the country, they couldn't internet around the country. They couldn't telephone around the country. It was post and telegrams and newspapers. You know, they had to rely on pretty labour-intensive forms of political agitation. Most of them didn't have vast amounts of money or necessarily time. You know, they were also running households. I think one way to think about it is how entrenched was the opposition, what forces were marshalled against the campaigners for women's suffrage. Those in opposition were vehemently opposed because change is disruptive. I mean, who would be there to greet them after a hard day's work? Who would do the laundry? And then, for all that the church helped radicalise some women, there were still those conservative Christian views that held women back. There is nothing laid down more emphatically in the scriptures 
than the subordination of the woman to the man. The sexes are not equal and never will be. Order, order. Subordination. Scriptures. Words you don't really hear as part of the Kiwi vernacular these days. But even the most conservative men who opposed women's suffrage still had to go home at the end of the day. Here's Kate Hunter. How much do we thank the women who were married to those parliamentarians? So Richard Seddon, so he was opposed to the bill, but yet his wife and daughter... That's right, they were all for it. (laughs) That's right. What do we know about them? I mean, his women folk are, I suspect, very interesting. Richard Seddon was known as King Dick, New Zealand's longest-serving Prime Minister from 1893 to 1906. They're very establishment family. They are a very kind of modest family. I was doing research on the fashion of wearing feathers in New Zealand in the late 19th century, and one of the places where they were conspicuously absent, there was not a feathered hat amongst the group, was when one of Seddon's daughters got married in the late 1890s. Now, this was quite unusual. Because it was a To not trend. have any feathers, yeah, that's wow. right. They weren't flashy. They and their friends were kind of a conservative Anglican crew. So the feathers, was con- they were considered quite ostentatious? Well, they were very ostentatious. A trend of the very time. Very trendy. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. And, you know, you look at other weddings that are happening at the same time and they're in the most magnificent outfits with, you know, bird of paradise feathers and a look called the magpie, which, of course, was all black and white. And, you wow. know, again, fashions as code, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so interesting to me that the Seddons, they were a very modest ordinary family but that didn't stop Mrs Seddon and all the girls saying dad you can't stop women having the vote and this is the other thing about the past black and white images don't give us any indication of the subtleties of symbolism especially when it comes to colour the colours for the British suffrage were purple which was about human dignity white for purity, and green for hope. Women who were campaigning for the vote very often wore white, their best dresses, then they would have splashes of colour. So the white camellia, of course, when you think about when the suffrage vote was taken, which was in September in New Zealand, and what are the flowers that are out? So camellias were much more common than really anything else. And Kate Shepard chose the camellia as a symbol for women's suffrage here in New Zealand. The giving of the white camellia to the parliamentarians who had voted for the suffrage bill and the giving of the red for those who had not. But we can't look at the politics of how women won the right to vote without considering how they got the men in parliament to vote for it and how they nearly failed. Back to Archive New Zealand's Stephanie Lash. Well, many of the men in the lower house of representatives, the elected members of parliament, were pro-suffrage. There were various reasons for that. It was really in the upper house of parliament, the legislative council, where the opposition was faced to the legislation. And there'd been a couple of bills previously dating from the mid-1880s where, for one reason or another, the bills had been gotten through the house of representatives, the lower house, and then they'd gotten to the legislative council and been stalled there and been, you know, kicked into touch. And so it was seen as a matter of of inevitability that women would gain the vote. But the year 1893, because of it being an election year, the heat was really on to see whether or not this would finally be the year where women gained the vote. And they did. Evening up! Evening up! Vote for women! Women get the franchise! Evening up! The year the bill was passed, John Balance, an ardent supporter of the bill, died. The suffragists feared the bill would never pass. Richard Seddon became Prime Minister and apparently tried underhanded tactics to stop the bill. Not that it worked. Two opposition councillors, both previously against suffrage, changed their votes to embarrass Seddon. By the time the bill went through Parliament in September 1893, the bill was passed by 20 votes to 18. What a win. That bill passed by acclamation, which means they didn't have to divide the vote. I think probably men that didn't agree with it probably voted for it in the House. Sean Maguire is a head archivist for Archives New Zealand. 
he discovered that his great-great-grandfather, Felix Maguire, was a member of Parliament back when women got the vote. And in fact, Felix Maguire supported the suffrage bill. So at that real local level, where they went, no, it's, this, this is good. This is something we need. And I'm not going to go against any waves fighting it. His statements on it is very, very clear. Yes, I support women having the vote. Sits down again. He's much more time taking discussing where the rail line should go and who's trying to stop the rail line going the right way. Do you think that men probably still didn't think that women would have any kind of impact, really, in any of the goings-on that really mattered? I'm pretty sure that they didn't think it would make a huge, huge difference. Mr Speaker, the principle of the franchise is that a person who exercises it may be voted for and take a seat in this house. If you give women the right to vote, you must logically give them the right to sit here, in this house. Here, here. Imagine that. Women in Parliament. But moving on. How did Felix get into politics? Well, it turns out it's the old school way. Connections, connections, connections. Sarah Quinn, the uh, woman he married, her brother uh, learnt how to be a printer for the Wanganui Herald. That's where he did his apprenticeship. The Wanganui Herald was owned by John Balance, who's one of the two statues outside of Parliament. So he starts making connections at that point. He joins the local volunteer units with Titakawaru in the area. Land wars were still going. So he starts making connections in the locality. That kind of moves him into politics. At times he wasn't particularly a natural politician. And why do you say that? He stood against a bloke called Harry Atkinson, who from time to time was Premier of New Zealand, and he was big in the Taranaki area. As far as I can tell, there was sort of a division between the settlers in the south of Taranaki and those of the ones around New Plymouth about what they aimed and what they wanted. Felix was pushed forward as a candidate against him. And where is this that he's based at the time? Hara, Patea... Stratford, rural towns, but all those towns needed to grow. He was known about town as a savvy businessman with a bit of dosh, and people liked him, which always helps. His bravery in the Māori War had been noted. He'd even tried his hand at gold mining on the West Coast. Then he settled in Pātia, making his way into public life as the first mayor of Hawara. He was later elected as a member of parliament, where he held a seat for almost 12 years. And as it turns out, he was also a man with fingers in multiple pies. And he's expected to be. And it's a status thing for him too. Well, I'm sure he got status from it. You know, there's ways you get status, and it's relationship to land or it's professional calling. As well as taking on leadership roles in all sorts of groups. Coral Society, very popular. He was vice president of it. He sponsored shooting cups for the local volunteer units. President of the rugby club. The only thing I find him not particularly associated with is the Hara Prohibition League. Which is kind of odd. Remember that he supported women's votes, and Prohibition was one of the main drivers of the suffrage movement. Perhaps he had his eyes on the prize, supporting his mates involved in the alcohol trade, and also wanting to support suffrage as a means for, well, more votes. Anyway, I think it's time to hear a bit more about his wife. She survived him for about 20 years. They had eight children, but lost two to illness. By the time that Felix died, there were six. Daughters, as far as I can tell, he was quite fond of, and sons he was a bit stern with. He's a Victorian father. So they got married in the 1860s. She survives the 1930s. And this is a bit I didn't see coming. The only ghost in the family. She's actually reputed to haunt a place. Is that right? To think the ghost of Felix Maguire's wife haunts a building somewhere in New Zealand. It's kind of eerie. Yes. Do you know if she signed the petition? <laughs> I know that she didn't. Why would that be? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. I've hunted and I can't find any signing. So maybe she felt like she was already able to influence society via her husband. Maybe. Maybe, and maybe. Do you think uh, that she did influence him? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I'm going, I am going to say Let's go with that, because as we know, behind every great man, and moving on to another great woman, 
one who worked alongside our leading suffragist, Kate Shepherd. Yeah, that's clear. An original as yes. well. Yeah, that's her as an old lady. This is Roderick Alley, and we're in Wellington, looking at old photographs laid out on his dining room table as the winter sun glints through a large window looking out onto a stretch of lawn. Clara Alley, the woman in the photographs, was a foundation member of the National Council of Women. She was also a core member of the group that pushed the petition into action and worked closely with Kate Shepard. Apparently they were good friends. The obituary, when she died in 52, how old was she when she passed away? 86. Wow, that's a pretty died, good age. Died in 52. Mm. I was 14, but I remember her very well. Clara had seven children who also became leaders in their fields. Rod's dad was the first national librarian, and his uncle is the renowned writer and political activist Riwi Ali. Clara lived in Christchurch, where all the action was taking place around the suffrage petition. She was self-educated and an avid reader, and right up until she passed away, she had an interest in international politics. Fairly sceptical take on the human condition. I mean, she'd chuckle about some absurdity. Great sense of being able to deflate pomposity. Remarkable sense of having a good look at a situation before making a judgement. Just uh, very measured... Very assured. Clara arrived in New Zealand in the 1870s as a 13-year-old girl. By then, the gold boom was on a downward slide. The New Zealand wars were coming to an end. Canterbury and Southland even had their own railways. She was born in Norfolk, and the original family name was Buckingham. And then she married Frederick Alley in the early 1890s. He was a strong-willed individual, something of a disciplinarian, a schoolteacher with the fascination of buying land, not always successfully. And I think the bond between them, which links very much into the suffrage interest she had, was temperance. And so they were both Christians? Yes, but I would say small-c Christians. New Zealanders were often looking abroad to what was going on, and Clara was no exception. But she never forgot where she came from. The old Norfolk background was quite strong, I remember my aunt telling me once that when they were growing up as children and someone misbehaved, she would say to them, well, you can't behave like a wretched little colonial (laughs) and the (laughs) strict disciplinarian husband had very high standards for all of the family and if they didn't meet up, he would round on them. And Rui he regarded as a bit of a no-hoper, frankly. He was the one who was slower to answer and so on. And he would have sometimes accused him of being a Norfolk dumbbell. <laughs> pretty, pretty harsh. Clara and Frederick had high expectations of their children, who all had to do their bit, including helping out in the suffrage movement. They had to dispense these various suffrage and also more particularly temperance pamphlets around the tram cars of Christchurch. Strong drinkers raging wine... <laughs> Wine is a mocker. That's another one. I can only imagine the looks of embarrassment on the children's faces. And remember the bit about Frederick being a disciplinarian? The kids went to the school where he taught. And I remember someone telling me, who was actually in one of his classes, that they really felt sorry for the alley kids because they were picked on. Not so much abused, but the kids he taught of his own family were singled out for extra criticism if they got things wrong. By him? By him. Picturing the scenario just brings tears to my eyes. Yeah, that's right. So there was not much forgiveness on his part. He was a strong, determined individual. Although after he died in 1936, she stocked up on sherry, bit of a standing joke in the family. They were, in a sense, an unlikely couple. Because although Clara was a strong woman, her husband was intent on doing whatever he pleased. He was still the man of the house, and he always had the last say. She took great pride in a house and a home and for garden that she developed in Cutler's Road in Christchurch. Frederick just arrived home one day and said, oh, I've bought a property in Rusley Road, we're moving there, without even consulting her. And she would have been very disappointed at that. The real strength, though, um, is from Clara. She gave the serenity and the composure and a sense of really perspective and tremendous sense of humour. 
It was a demanding life. My father told me once he lost a two-shilling piece, once called a florin, and it simply had to be found. They didn't starve or go short, but, you know, times were relatively tough. The family itself, all of them very strong-willed individuals. And there was no stopping any of them when they had their mindset on something. They were also politically informed, just like their mum. I think World War One is something else. I mean, the loss of their son, Eric, aged 23 in the war in France, was a deep blow. And I've heard from my aunt, Gwen, that when he died, the father lost a lot of faith in his values, we took a real knock. And Clara uh, took it in a stride. Now we'll come back to Rod in a bit, because I want to find out more about Kate Shepherd the person who rounded up the women to go door-knocking to get this thing signed. Who was she, beyond the black-and-white photos with the Mona Lisa smile and the pompadour hairstyle? Despite being the face on our $10 note, I still can't imagine or relate to her. Was she charming and charismatic? What was she really like? Let's head back to Dr Charlotte MacDonald to find out. I, I don't know that you'd describe her as charismatic. She was incredibly intelligent political strategist. So don't underestimate her political acumen. She knew how to argue a case in public. She knew how to work with John Hall, who was the key MP in the parliament, who was for the women's vote and mobilised MPs who were supporting that. So, you know, when should the bill be introduced? how many MPs were going to vote for it. You know, so she worked very closely with him in guiding that, so that's kind of a matter of tactics, and you know, they'd introduced the bill several times and failed. Third time's a charm, as they say. The first two petitions were passed through the lower house of representatives, but rejected at the upper house. So you know, how did they get it right this time? And they didn't know they were going to be successful in 1893, but you try and do better. Extremely composed, I suppose, so I think she was able to sort of hold a movement together, hold the ideas together, bring together groups of women up and down the country, some of whom were pro-temperance, women's vote supporters, some of whom were not, so there were franchise committees formed in a place like Whanganui, for instance. There was a Women's Christian Temperance Union there in a group, but there was another group of women who weren't temperance people but were for the vote. So that's where, I think, Kate Shepard you know, was incredibly skillful as a political analyst, a strategist. You know, why do people keep joining and getting excited? Why is the petition bigger and bigger? People want to join it, and there's a possibility of success. The movement snowballed. More and more women answered Kate Shepard's call, organising, door-knocking and ultimately signing. Because behind this great woman were other great women, like Rod Alley's grandmother. Clearer. She was very strong and very attractive to all sorts of people. So I'm actually wondering whether or not Clara is actually the one that was the charismatic personality that, like you say, was bringing people in, was getting them I on. think that's right. Not that um, Clara was an outwardly overt person. I mean, she would not be in the front of a demonstration. She did tend to lead from behind. But I think what she could do was loosen people up. I mean, there was famous stories they'd have these big parties out at the Rusley Road residence in Christchurch. Writers would come, there were people from different walks of life, and all these young men would arrive. But they'd all gravitate um, to the back kitchen to talk to this, you know, much older woman who had these sparkling blue eyes and a great conversationalist. She also had a very close relationship with the famous leaders of the suffrage movement. Kate Shepherd actually lived in the old house at Rusley Road in Rickerton. You mentioned on the phone that Kate would bring her lovers to the house. I think it was more the fact that uh, the man she later married, aged 78, Lovell Smith, must have been on the scene once she was still married to her original husband. Now, at the time, Kate Shepherd was editor of The White Ribbon and Jeannie Lovell Smith was the business manager. 
Kate moved in with her and her husband, William Lovell Smith, later on in life. The families, you see, were very close. Some believe that this was a lover relationship between William and Kate, but no one really knows for sure. Now, you've got to remember that the community was very small and people would talk. So there may well have been an attraction, but one that really only flourished later on in life. There's at least a couple of photographs of the original suffrage movement women. And Clara, uh, my grandmother, is sitting there in the front row, along with Kate Shepard and all these other famous luminaries at the time. They were very, very close. Do you think that there was a mutual respect between her and Kate? Very much so. One of the photographs, Springfield out in Canterbury, Clara managed to sign up all the women in that small town to support the, uh, the huge petition that went to Parliament demanding suffrage for women. So she got out and about in the local community. And this was the Malvern Institute for Women. What are some of your earliest memories of her? Oh, just the serenity, kindness, and just, you know, great warmth. Just before she died in 1950, she delivered an address to the National Council of Women's Golden Jubilee Conference. And I quote, what can women do about the suffering caused by war? I think our women's organizations should devote more time to international affairs. We have clever and forceful women who should try to get opinions on both sides without prejudice or propaganda. Women should take the initiative in this matter New Zealand men were noted in the war for their initiatives and bravery. Let women do the same for peace. Then we shall not feel strangers and afraid in a world we did not make. Women taking initiatives for peace. I think Kate and Clara and the women who fought for our rights to vote would be pleased to see the faces of women who take their rightful seats in Parliament. Today, there's a record number of 46 women who make up 38% of all MPs. One of those women is Kitty Allen, who, like the women who have gone before her, wanted to create change for those who couldn't speak for themselves. Here's Kitty's address in reply to Parliament last year. My name is Kitty Allen and I'm a Member of Parliament uh, for the Labour Party based in the mighty East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> How would you describe yourself? Oh dear, it really depends on who the audience is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, if it's a professional context, I'll talk a little about my role. But again, it depends on who my audience is because some days I'm a mum, some days I'm a politician. Every day I'm all of that. And... Okay, but what about when you're at home with your slippers on, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, watching a movie, like who is, who is Kitty Allen? Uh, Kitty's a girl from rural New Zealand who um, loves her family, uh, loves our community, uh, loves our environment and is passionate about justice. I'm 50 bucks in my pocket, a second-hand backpack on my back and a borrowed tent strapped to my pack. I commenced my first long-distance hitchhike down country towards those cherry fields. En route, I came through Wellington. I remember walking down to the ferry terminal, gazing up at this odd-shaped building to my left, kind of compelled to take that little meander up that track, and sitting outside on that forecourt outside this house, gazing up, wondering, wonder what they do in there. I said to myself that day, I'm going to find out, and I kind of want to work there. What is it that ultimately drives you to mm. want to be a politician? It always goes, for me, back to my foundations. Basically, I was one of ten kids. Uh, I'm the ninth of those ten children, and I was adopted out uh, to my uh, birth mother's 
older sister who couldn't conceive children. I was brought up in an incredibly loving, warm, Pentecostal Christian family home. And I saw the trials and tribulations that every single one of my siblings endured. And you know, we were raised in a, a range of different environments. But I look to my older siblings in particular, all strong, articulate men and women, of which all of the young men ended up engaged in the criminal justice process before the age of 16. Uh, my sisters, incredibly strong, beautiful, articulate, intelligent uh, young woman, most of whom were solo mothers on the DPB. And I thought to myself as a younger person at that time, how come the world's like this for some folks? What is it that enables some people to thrive and others not? So I think at a very young age, had a real recognition probably of my privilege because of the environment that I was growing up in. And, it, and so that's always been the driving question for me. Why are things the way that they are? And is it, is it right? Kitty says her religious upbringing and a loving family environment created the foundation to see the world through different eyes. Maybe much like the women from our past who fought for change and whose core values underpinned the suffrage movement. My parents were heavily involved in the church, so I learnt that life was to be of service to others, that your community was paramount. I learnt that there was no such thing as a free lunch in life. You had to work very hard. My old man worked at the meatworks. Mum was a um, house cleaner and those types of things and cook at a rest home. I had role models in the home that were very committed to both of those things, service but also (laughs) labourers' hard work. And um, I think some of those values seeped into me pretty young. Kitty came from a family who believed in standing up for what they thought was right. But she says... When you get the chance to finally have a say, the work gets harder. Politics isn't about making the easy ones, it's about making the hard decisions. I always try to say that if people want to come into the political environment, ground yourself, uh, learn a practice that grounds you, uh, that you understand your core value proposition, because when you're in here and in these roles, you are constantly in the firing line and not just you but your family and everybody really associated and affiliated with you. So you have to be able to navigate that in a way that uh, your soul stays intact. And sometimes keeping it together requires a pretty thick skin. Look, I can only but commend those many women that have gone before me. It's absolutely just insane to see that it was only just the other day that we had our first female Member of Parliament, and it was only just the other day that all of those politicians, those uh, female politicians, the Helen Clarks and the Jenny Shipleys, and you know that cohort that I grew up seeing as the embodiment of female leadership in politics at that time, they were in the first thirty uh, females in the country <laughs> to be parliamentarians, and now I'm something around about the hundred and thirtieth, and you know we're about thirty odd percent or something in Parliament at the moment. There are more of us today than there were yesteryear. And particularly on my side of the house, there is an extreme camaraderie, you know, uh, amongst the sisters. (laughs) And there are some things that we all inherently understand about the environment that um, pulls us together and uh, and compels us to continue to advocate for um, the role of women in Parliament. For example, my party, we do have a quota system where we seek to strive towards having 50% uh, women uh, in our caucus. Women bring so much to the table from all of our various walks of lives. And when I think of my caucus right now, it's so colourful, you know. It's young and it's old and it's, you know, it comes from so many different walks of life. Because the counter-argument is always, isn't it? Well, you know, if they could get there on merit, they'd get there on merit. <laughs> but the reality is, is they're incredibly competent and able women. <laughs> and two, sometimes it helps us to have a little bit of a target to ensure that we do see Uh, the diversity and incredible abilities of women in our respective environments. And I think that's a challenge for corporate uh, culture. I think that's a challenge for whatever professional environment is that to ensure that we do have that gender equity within our workplace. Because I think there's quite a few studies that show that uh, work productivity increases too when you have a, a more equal approach to gender representation and leadership roles. I'm filled with genuine hope entering to this House as part of the sixth Labour-led government and particularly under the leadership of Prime Minister Jacinda 
I do. Do you call yourself a feminist? Absolutely. You know, in Tao Māori, there is a discussion around the use of that term where there's value in the concept of advocating for the rights of the sisterhood, heck yeah. <laughs> we must also be really practical in the fact that, and, you know, this is particularly th- uh, visible in the second wave of feminism. There wasn't recognition of class and race in particular, and that, in, in my view, uh, stagnated the opportunities that we could have had for universal recognition of um, rights for women. I read this quote this morning from a parliamentarian who was advocating for quota systems in their parliamentary system, so gendered quota systems. And the quote went something to the effect of, when a woman enters into parliament, uh, parliament changes her. When many women enter parliament, they change parliament. Uh, Sir, I commence my remarks in this house today referring to my 17-year-old self uh, stumbling across this parliament. On that same day, sir, that young girl penned a short spoken word piece outside on this lawn. We are raising a nation of beautiful babies. This is our generation where we lift our heads high. Begone the days of our forebearers where they were taught to be shy. Because this land, yes, our identities fostering visions of equality, strong people and strong communities. Yeah. My prayer is that the work I do in this house alongside my colleagues, lays the seed so that my daughter and indeed all children in this nation will fulfil the dreams and aspirations of our forebearers for a fairer, more equitable Aotearoa New Zealand. You've been listening to Beyond Kate, a podcast exploring women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand. Special thanks too to Papa, Natonga Sound and Vision for archival audio and Archives New Zealand. The 1893 petition is housed at Hutohu, the National Library of New Zealand. I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. The engineer for this episode was William Saunders. The dialogue coach for the series and podcast team is Adam McCauley. And the executive producer is Tim Watkin. If you'd like to subscribe, or you haven't already, you can do that via the RNZ website or app, Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, Stitcher, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time... Beyond Kate continues with a look at social reform. Catch you later. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.